So we've sung and we've asked God to speak. And praise be to him when we come to him and we seek him in his word. He's told us that he's written this for the very purpose of speaking to his people. And so now we have the opportunity to hear and listen. And and we want to make sure that as we do so, uh, we're doing it in a a way that um, not only glorifies him, but also helps us to keep in mind uh, you know what we're doing. This isn't you're, you're not passive because you're sitting down. Uh, we're all together active. Uh, we're all seeking to hear from God prayerfully in this time. And uh, you know, Phil touched on something earlier, and I, I just want to bring it out a little more because there are some important things uh, coming up for us as a church family. And one of those things is the men's breakfast. So it's almost here, guys. Do you like breakfast? Yeah. Hello. Okay, great. Guess what? There's going to be a breakfast. Come on by. Enjoy. It'll be a great time uh, to fellowship together. It'll be a wonderful time to be able to hear more about ways we can grow together as brothers. And so I just want to encourage you to be there. And then, ladies, we've got something special for you as well. Because the, so the, the men's breakfast is Saturday the 19th at 8.30 a.m. The following day, Sunday the 20th, in the evening, uh, we've got a special speaker coming. And her name is Vanessa Ellen, Dr. Vanessa Ellen, and she's going to be here to talk with our ladies about delighting in God's design. And so it's going to be a fantastic night. There's going to be dinner included. It's 10 bucks to cover the dinner. It's going to be really nice. You're going to enjoy that time together. And then there's also going to be just fellowship. And, and, and Vanessa is a, a gifted, Dr. Dr. Ellen, she's a gifted speaker. Uh, and she's a wonderful person. And I think you'll really enjoy being with her. Her husband is going to be with us that morning. So we get both Ellens this time. Both doctors, Ellen, will be with us. And uh, we're really going to uh, just look forward to that time. So don't miss out on it. You can sign up. I believe there's a sign-up sheet there in the, in the foyer area. And you don't want to miss out on that. And uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about, about some things. And, um, and what, one of the things I've been thinking about is just the way in which value sometimes escapes us. You know, something's really valuable. Something's really precious. And then for some reason, I don't know about you, but I, I can tend to be like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's valuable. Maybe it isn't. Um, I can put things off to the side. If I, if I don't think they're valuable, I can ignore them. I'll take them for granted. You know, I'm, I'm not really attuned to what is there. And sometimes I'll get kind of, you know, you're reading along, something will hit my feet. It'll be in a blog or something. And there's, you know, some, some valuable thing that I've never even considered before. And so uh, there are some research scientists, and they've been studying with the Hubble uh, Space Telescope. I love that thing, right? It's out there in in orbit, right? It doesn't get all the distortion from our atmosphere. It can just look out and see things in the solar system and beyond. And they're observing this massive asteroid, and it's known as 16 Psyche. You're like, well, why? Why is it called that? It was discovered by an Italian astronomer back in March 17th of 1852, and, and he actually named it after the, the Greek goddess of the soul and the Greek goddess of love, Psyche, because he was just so overwhelmed with what he found. He was just thrilled. And so uh, it's called 16 Psyche now that they've numbered it. And, uh, and it's grabbed astronomers' attention for several reasons. First of all, it's one of the largest objects out there in the asteroid belt. So that, that between Mars and Jupiter, there's a massive belt of asteroids. And the average diameter of this thing is about 140 miles. So it's big. So think like L.A. to San Diego. That's the diameter. It's big. Uh, Secondly, it's interesting to them because it's made mostly of metal. 
which is kind of fascinating. But here's the real kicker. The metals on this thing, or that it's composed of, are estimated to be valued at 10 quintillion dollars. Yeah, I know, quintillion, what's that? That's essentially a 10 followed by 18 zeros. Yeah, it's, a, it's now a bigger number than the national debt. Who knew, right? There are numbers bigger than that. <laughs> it's not there yet, right? Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. That, that really means that this thing, the estimated value of this thing is essentially larger than the entire world economy. Think about that. Yeah, you heard it right. So the value of this is literally more valuable than everything the entire planet Earth puts out on an economic level. That's something, isn't it? And so what are they doing? They're going to send up a probe, obviously. Hello. That's what they're doing. And uh, I was excited to find out that this thing has actually shown up uh, for, you know, kind of just pre-launch prep earlier this year. And it's supposed to launch later this year. It should reach 16 Psyche by sometime around 2026 or so. Because it's, it's a long ways off, folks. It's not like close, okay? I mean, it's a ways out there. But when you, something, when you see something of value like that, you know, let's face it, if you could go up in a spacesuit with a probe, imagine that. You can go up there with it, and you've got your pickaxe and your shovel. What would you do? And some of you are like, that is way too scary. I wouldn't touch it. Okay, fine. Let's say they took a chunk of it, you know, maybe a 10-mile chunk of it, and brought it down and put it, like, right where uh, 580 meets 5. Just bam, and said, have at it. What are you doing? I know what you're doing. You're getting your pickaxe and your shovel right now, and you're heading over there. That's what we're doing. Why? Because it's valuable. There's something to be had. There's something to be enjoyed. There's something to be received. And, and, and I think what happens when you see that, it changes how you live. It changes what you do. And as we return to our, our series in Luke, we find that Luke is addressing this idea of value, this idea of super, supreme value. Only who he's talking about is the person of Jesus the most valuable one that could ever be. And, and it's really easy, I think, for us to, again, even maybe you're here today and you've, you've never come to Jesus. My, my hope for you in, in our time together would be that you would come to see the over and above and beyond all things value that Christ is and that you would receive him even today. But if you're here today and you have come to Christ, it's very possible for us to kind of walk along and forget. Other things begin to come more, become more important. Other things kind of cloud our perspective. And maybe it's a pressing trial in your life. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's something happening in your family. Maybe, maybe it's other things that you're dealing with right now. But, but here we're going to see that, that Luke is not content to leave us without seeing the overwhelmingly superior value of Jesus to all things. So I want to ask you to go ahead and open to Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 21 through 40. And uh, it's been a while since we've been back in Luke, so let's just recap a bit. Luke is writing this gospel account for a purpose. Back in chapter 1, in the beginning, he's writing to Theophilus, and he's saying to him, many of undertaken to write the historical events that, that, that Jesus walked through and lived for, the, you know, for others to, to hear. He goes, it seemed right for me to investigate everything carefully and to put together a well-ordered account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And in 
Chapter 1, verse 4, he says his reason. So that you may know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. And so we find in the beginning of, of the gospel that the birth of John the Baptist is revealed uh, by an angel. He comes to a, a priest who's serving in the temple, Zacharias. And, and what Zacharias does, instead of believing what the angel said, Zacharias responds with skepticism and disbelief. And as a result of that, the angel, who we find out is named Gabriel, says to him, well, because I am God's messenger and you didn't believe me, you're going to be mute until this thing I told you is going to happen comes to pass. What was coming to pass? The birth of John the Baptist. And then, after that, the angel Gabriel travels at another time later to a young woman in an obscure place called Nazareth. Unlike the center of of all things at the temple, this person's outside of uh, kind of what's prominent and well-known. And her name is Mary. And Gabriel reveals to her that she also will be um, having a son. And here's the thing. She's a virgin. She's going, how can that be? Now, her question is much different than Zacharias's. She asks in sincerity and in faith. She says, how does this happen? I'm a virgin. How, how How can this be? And so uh, she finds out that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her and she is going to give birth to a son. And for that reason, this offspring is going to be the son of God. And she had so much courage and so much uh, trust. And, and, uh, and, and so she goes, may it be done according to your word as I, I'm trusting the Lord. Uh, even though she knows she's going to be falsely accused of infidelity. She knows all the trials that she'll face uh, in, in terms of the peer view of what's going on with her. And then, uh, so John is born and named, the, the John the Baptist is born in, in the next section, and then we find uh, in, in the previous section that we were just in that Jesus was born. And the angels appear to shepherds in the beginning of chapter 2, and the shepherds come and bear witness, and, and Mary is pondering all these things in her heart. And the shepherds come and find the baby just as the angels said, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and they go off and they leave glorifying God. And then we find ourselves now in um, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Uh, in honor of God's word, would you please stand and follow along as I read. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision... His name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord... You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow, to the age of 84, she, was, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you, in this time as we are gathered before you, we would ask that you would teach us and that you would renew our minds and that you would help us to see, especially, the above and beyond all things value of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that you would transform us and that we would live in light of, of this one who came, the consolation of Israel, the Redeemer, the Savior, the King of Kings. We thank you in his name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as we look at this passage, I just want to kind of bring us into the, the context here. What's happening is we've got the account previous was of John the Baptist and his birth. And then this was the account of Jesus at the conclusion of his dedication. But there's an interesting way in which both of those accounts end that's bringing us to understand the contrast that we're looking at today. And so if you would, just briefly, turn back to chapter 1, verse 80. And note what it says there. Referring to John the Baptist, what does it say? And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds, a lot like, it sounds a lot like what we just read at the conclusion of this section regarding Jesus. You've got in both uh, chapter 1, verse 80, and in chapter 2, verse 40, that the child continued to grow, right? That, that concept is there. With reference to Jesus, it's, and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So it, it, at the end, it's a little different, but it's the same kind of statement. So there's a deliberate parallel here in the way Luke is unfolding the account for us. And we should take note of that. There's a reason for that. There is John the Baptist and Jesus. And there's a comparison happening between the two. However, we see in this account also that there's a lot of things said about Jesus that are not said about John the Baptist. And the reason for that is because Jesus is superior to, above and beyond, greater than. We saw that in the commissioning of John You'll recall when, the, when his father prophesied about him, how you will make the, the way of the Lord, you will make his path straight. He prophesied how you're, you're here to prepare the way for someone else who's coming after you. And, and later, John the Baptist is going to describe his own ministry in that way. And he's going to say, you know what? I'm preparing the way. I'm not the Messiah. I'm preparing the way for the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. 
right? So he, he understands that. So here we have this contrast. And so then what we're doing is we're, we're looking at this section then and, and kind of asking the question, well, then what, what makes Jesus this unique one? This, this one that's uh, even, even greater than, than John the Baptist and, and, and ultimately greater than all others. And so we're going to go through and just highlight several areas where we find that. So Jesus is, first of all, unique as the law keeper. And what are we talking about there? Well, if you look at verses 21 through 24, and then also later at verse 27, we see that, that what's happening here is that Jesus is being circumcised. Uh, he's going, undergoing what, what uh, the law would demand that he do. Uh, his parents, of course, are fulfilling that really as those who are raising Jesus. But the idea is that here, as God's son, there is solidarity with God's people. He's born under the law. And we're going to see throughout his life, even as Luke unfolds his life for us, that Jesus does what? He, he keeps the law perfectly. And this is, these are the first moments of that. He is born under the law. He is living as one under the law. He is circumcised at the proper time. And he's, uh, he's, he's, he's being placed in, in, in that spot whereby he can carry out the obedience that you and I could never achieve. And so that's what's significant about that section. And that's why it cites, you'll notice, all these different elements of the law of Moses. Look at verse 22. According to the law of Moses. Verse 23. As is written in the law of the Lord. And so we even find in verse 24, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's that all about? Well, we find there that one of the options given in the law is if someone did not have means, if they were not wealthy, if they couldn't afford a larger animal to sacrifice, that, that two small turtle doves or two young pigeons were acceptable. And so we find that, that certainly Mary was not a person of means, Joseph wasn't a person of means, and so they gave what they could. But nonetheless, they fulfilled the law. If you flip over to verse 27, notice how that verse ends. Um, they brought the child Jesus to do what? To carry out for him the custom of the law. There it is again. And so that's the idea, is that um, Jesus is the one who is carrying out what the law would demand, and his parents are putting him in that place also. They are also obeying the law. And Jesus is going to be this one who fulfills this carrying out of God's law for a purpose, for a reason. And that's going to become clearer as we go through this section. But here's what I want to ask you. Does that, does that cause you to see Jesus as valuable? Is that valuable to you? Jesus is the one who keeps the law. You know why he does that? Because we can't. If our salvation rested on our ability to keep the law, where would we all find ourselves? We would find ourselves damned to hell. And rightly so. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, no, I don't need Jesus to keep the law for me because I can do a pretty good job myself because I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm certainly not as bad as them, whoever they are. If that's you today, I, you need to understand something. The Bible says this, that if someone were to keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, they become guilty of all. 
Why, you might ask? Well, the reason for that is because God tells us that he is holy. Matter of fact, he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is absolutely perfect in his being. He is absolutely separate from sin. He is completely other than us. And as such, if we are to know him and if we're to be with him and if we're going to enter his presence and even enjoy him, we need to be perfect. That's the standard. And that means we're all in big trouble. It's fascinating. You might think, well, no, but I'm a pretty religious person. Yeah, you know the book of Romans begins with stating how the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and then talks about people who are not, you know, of really any faith. They're just sort of living for pleasure. They're hedonists. They're involved in all kinds of different, you know, debauchery and, and, and worshiping uh, various pagan idols and everything else. And you would think, you know, oh man, that's right. Those people are in big trouble. And it, it's, it describes that. But then by the time you get to chapter 2, you know what it does? Paul turns to those who are religious and says, you know everything I said about those who are not religious? Well, you religious, you're in just as much trouble as they're in. Because your religion can't save you. Because whatever moral standard you set up, the truth is, you violate it. So, if you're religious... You are without hope unless you embrace the work of the one who has kept the law perfectly in your place. Will you receive the finished work of the lawkeeper, Jesus? And if you have, will you remind yourself regularly that your hope rests on his ability to keep the law, not on yours? How does that show in our lives? It causes us to live in a way different way. Do, do we still long to obey God? Absolutely. We want to obey God. Why? Because he's given us a new heart. Because we have new desires now. When you come to Christ, when you are, are what, we're, what the Bible would call born again, you are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Your, your, your nature is changed. You are renewed. You're a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And so, yes, there is, there is a growth and a desire and a pressing ahead with all vigilance to obey, but it's not to secure acceptance from God. It's because you've already been accepted by God, because of the law keeper, Jesus. So let's be sure to remind ourselves of that regularly. It'll come out in many ways in our lives. You know what it means, too? When we are uh, overwhelmed by the beauty and uniqueness of the lawkeeper, Jesus, we also grow in extending that same mercy to other people in a, around us in our lives. We become less demanding that, other keep our, that others keep our demands because we realize we could never keep God's demands. And that's where we see the fruit of the Spirit grow. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things start coming out in our lives more when we understand that there's a law keeper and we are in him and our hope rests in his finished work. And because of that now, 
rather than trying to keep this thing on my own effort. I'm now instead obeying out of love for God because he first loved me. And now because that grace has been given to me, I can now share that with those around me. Is your life becoming more like, if, if you're in Jesus, is your life becoming more like that? If not, could it be that it's because you're not valuing, again, Jesus, the law keeper? Jesus is unique, not only as law keeper, but also as the expected one. We find that in verses 25 through 30. I love this guy, Simeon, when he comes on the scene. He's, yeah, I love it because he's someone who has been looking for. That word for looking for has this idea of waiting eagerly for something. So you've got to realize this. Simeon is a guy, he's living where? Under the oppressive regime of first century Rome. He's a Jewish person living under the oppression of Rome. And what's he looking for? He's looking ahead and he's waiting for something. Notice what verse 25 says. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word literally means comfort. He's looking for comfort. The comfort for his people in the midst of of a very, very trying time. There's so much pain and disappointment and there's so much uh, grief nationally at this time for Israel. And yet this one is looking for the consolation of Israel. He's he's looking past the present circumstances. He's looking past everything that's happening in his life around him because he knows what God's promises are. And he's saying, I know what that is and my heart and hope is set there and I'm waiting, I'm expectant for that comfort. And the Holy Spirit revealed something to him. So realize this, prophecy had not been happening for about four centuries. Now with the arrival of Jesus, what's going on? Huh, some of these things are kicking into gear. And certainly revelation directly from God is one of those things coming directly to him. And it it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And you're going, man, that's amazing. God, God showed him that. And so you can imagine this moment. He walks into the temple in the spirit and the parents bring the child Jesus, verse 27, to carry out this this custom of the law as we mentioned. And what does he do? He takes him into his arms and blesses God and says, now Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. Could you put yourself in the place of the parents there? I'm walking in, I'm just picturing our little guy Grant when he was little. He's bigger now, okay, but I get to picture him still when he was a little guy. I walk in and someone goes, here, let me... Lord, thank you for... I'm like, what? Are you taking my kid? Like, I don't know. It's a great way to get tackled by me. I'm not sure, you know? But, but he's so overwhelmed with joy that he has to just proclaim praise. Why? Because the comfort, the long-awaited comfort that he'd been longing for, that consolation, it was now here. 600 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah referred to that comfort several times. He said things like, Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. 
Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth in a joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and in her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert, like the garden of her, the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of a melody. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Those prophecies were ringing in Simeon's ears. And now he sees them coming to pass. Jesus is there. He's the expected one. And I think the question is, do we live with that kind of joy as the expected one has been received? Are we anticipating even his return? Because we're still, we're still expecting, by the way, Jesus, in a different way. He's coming back. Can we, can we learn from Simeon that mindset even? So Jesus is unique as lawkeeper, as expected one, and also as savior. We find that in 31 and 32. He continues to go on to say, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. What? This expected one. This, this salvation, he says. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is stunning. He's again quoting Isaiah, but he's saying this salvation that's come, it's not just for Israel. It's for everyone. And he kind of brings out kind of a a beautiful nuance here. It's, It's a very descriptive way that he shows salvation prepared by God. It's not for one ethnic group. It's not for one class. It's for all. It's come through the people of Israel. And so we kind of have this God's craftsmanship and salvation on display here. Because it's, it's all poetry, right? So you can look here and see, if you take a look, that light and glory in verse 32, they're, they're parallel, right? So light and glory, they're parallel. But then notice the end of verses of the lines of 32. You've got Gentiles and Israel. They're opposites. So you have p- parallel things, light and glory, to opposites. Gentiles and Israel. How does that work? To them, that would be a very stark contrast. And yet God has given his law, his covenants, and ultimately the Messiah himself through the nation of Israel. At the same time, the benefits of that light and his salvation shine not only on Israel, but on all peoples. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And it stirred the heart of Simeon that that he just bursts out in praise. And I think the question for all of us is, does that stir us? Does the gospel excite you? Does the good news about Jesus just cause you to go, what? How's that possible? How can a righteous, just, holy God rescue sinners like us, like me? 
how can that be accomplished? How can justice be appeased and mercy be extended at the same time in the same moment? Those are also opposites. And yet they do. They are extended and they meet in the person and work of Jesus. God's work through Israel is to bring blessing on all the nations. Christ's death for all is to bring life to all who trust in him. And so no, it's no wonder that Paul, when describing the gospel in the book of Romans, all of a sudden he'll just erupt into praise to say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. When we see the gospel, when we see the good news about Jesus, when we understand who he is as Savior, we erupt into that kind of praise. And certainly, certainly here when we're gathered, but I'm talking throughout the week. And to the extent that we are not caught up and amazed, I would say to that extent we are not aware of the unique over and above all things value of Jesus. Jesus is unique as lawkeeper, expected one, and savior. He's also unique as touchstone. And you're probably going, what? Are you talking about touchstone? Okay. I've been trying for a while to capture verses 34 and following, 35. Because just here's what a touchstone is. Maybe you already know, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of stone. Typically, it's going to be jasper or something else. And you can take alloy or gold and rub it against the touchstone to tell if it's real. Because if it's real, it leaves a mark. And if it's not real, it leaves something else. So you can tell. So a touchstone is something where basically it, it, be, it, it can be used now figuratively to describe a standard or a criterion by which something is judged or recognized. Right? A touchstone. And here, what, what Simeon is describing as he continues to prophesy is this child, this baby that you're, having, that you're holding in your arms right now, uh, it's no ordinary baby. This baby, everyone will encounter this baby and will be touched in some way. And depending on how they respond to their contact with this little one will determine their ultimate destiny. Jesus is the touchstone of the ages. All have to encounter him and deal with him in one way or another. And that's what Simeon's bringing out here. And that's something that we've got to take to heart too. Because look at what, what Simeon says in verse 34. He blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child's appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. There it is. The fall and rise of many in Israel. So the leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, many of them, not all, but many of them are going to fall. Peter will call Jesus the cornerstone. It's a, it's a different picture there of, of the, the chief part, the main thing. The rest of the building is set up based on the cornerstone. Paul will write of that in Ephesians as well. 
But here, Simeon is saying, everyone's going to come in contact with this one and either rise or fall. And, and then the next phrase, and for a sign to be opposed. That's more general. So rise and fall in Israel, more generally, to be opposed or implied to be received. Which is it going to be? And that's really ultimately what we come down to. Jesus will say this himself as he's interacting with people throughout his ministry. He says this very simply, who do you say that I am? And friend, if you're here today and you've never answered that question, that's the question he's asking you right now as well. Who do you say that I am? You need to decide. It's not an option. For all of us, we have to come to that place where we will encounter Jesus and we will have to say either, I am receiving you, I am coming to you, or I am rejecting you. And you need to know there are eternal consequences for that. So the falling and rising, some will receive the good news, others are going to reject it. There's this mention of a sword. It's interesting. The, the word for sword here is actually a very large, broad sword. And the way it's being described here is that for you, Mary, Simeon's saying, pain and grief are going to be deep and wide, like the passing of a great sword through your heart. And as he prophesies, that's exactly what will happen. She will be there on that day that he gives his life to rescue sinners like you and me. She will know that grief. That great sword is going to go through Mary's soul. But there's a purpose for it. Notice in the next phrase in verse 35. A sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that... Okay, so there's a, there's a reason for this. It's not just happening to you. You're not just experiencing grief for nothing. No, there's an end. There's a reason. There's a purpose. To the end that others also will have their own hearts and thoughts revealed. And I believe that is really referring to all who are going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear about this massive moment where Jesus voluntarily gives up his life, the only innocent one to have ever lived, giving his life for the guilty. And we too then will have our own thoughts and our hearts revealed even as we encounter that truth. Certainly for Mary, she has to keep in mind your suffering has a purpose. It's not empty. It's not random. And I think we need to also learn that as well. As the touchstone of the ages carries out his work and places himself in such a way as a sacrifice for sin, all have to encounter him and will deal with their relationship with him. All will have to deal with that question, who do you say that I am? Those that come to him, we too share in that grief with Mary of that sacrifice given for us. And yet there's also the joy 
Now, he conquers sin. He conquers death. He conquers hell. He rises again. The thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. As we all encounter the truth of the gospel, we find ourselves taking in the very thing Simeon prophesied here. So Jesus is unique as as law keeper, expected one, savior, touchstone, and lastly, as redeemer. We find that in verses 36 and following. There's a prophetess, Anna. I love this. Again, think about it. No, No prophets for about 400 years or so. Simeon's been prophesying. Now Anna, the prophetess, is prophesying. It's fascinating that most of the space of this account for her is given to describe the quality of Anna's character in life. In other words, she is a trustworthy witness. She was married. She had a short time with her husband and the rest of the time she has spent ministering in the temple, fasting, praying, serving. And so because of this, Luke is bringing out for us that her prophetic role is vital to displaying and proclaiming the ministry and message of Jesus, and she is a reliable spokesman for those who are reading this. It's interesting that it says that she was serving in verse 37 in the temple night and day. Uh, Interesting, because you're thinking, why night and day? Well, that's how uh, the Jewish view of uh, the day and the week and the calendar was. Every day began at night. (laughs) It was evening to morning. We think the opposite, so that's, that's a strange phrase. But to them, that's how they look at a day. And certainly it's not saying she was literally there all the time. It's, no, it's the idea, you know, she was there night and day as in constantly she was there. Regularly she was there. Consistently she was there. And she, what does she do? She gives thanks to God. She speaks of Jesus to all who were, notice that word, looking Same as Simeon, same word, same phrase, anticipating, waiting for. Those that were going, we know Messiah is coming. We know there's hope. We know this is a dark time. We know that Rome is the one who's ruling the known world right now. And they're cruel, heartless, twisted, perverted, evil. They're oppressing people. And yet, there's hope. Looking for what? The redemption of Jerusalem. There he is, the redeemer. The one who purchases his people out of the slave market of sin. How does he purchase them? He pays for them with his own blood. His own life given in exchange for them. So as we take all this in and see that Jesus is the one who is Unique as lawkeeper, expected one, savior, touchstone, and redeemer. As we see all this, the question is, how are we supposed to respond? How do we take in a message like this and, and actually do what the author of this text intended for us to do? Well, thankfully, I think we find it right in the text. In other words, how do the people here respond? And the first thing we see is, Amazement would be one thing. Sheer, complete, full amazement. And we we would see that in the way Mary and Joseph respond. Look at verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him, about Jesus. 
This idea of being amazed has, has this idea of, it means to marvel, to look at something and just to be aghast, is to go, what is that? There's astonishment here. Uh, we're going to see this word used again as Jesus carries out various miracles, as he heals the demoniac, as he curses the fig tree, as he heals uh, the person who is mute and possessed. Uh, it's when, the, when the storm on the sea happens and Jesus whispers to this raging sea and it just goes as still as glass in the moment, in the same way you, someone would calm a child. It, it, that astonishment that the disciples felt, same word. And so there's an amazement. And, and again, the question we need to ask, are we amazed? Are you? If not, we've got to re- kind of get back in here. We've got to f- spend more time here. We've got to spend more time together as brothers and sisters talking about God and the things of God. We need fellowship. Uh, we, we need community. Uh, we need time in prayer, in the Word. We need to take the steps that God gives us in order to reinvigorate our hearts. It also seems that if we are living this way, it's going to come out in other ways that we find here in this passage because when we are amazed, you know what's going to happen? We're going to end up receiving comfort, just like Simeon did in verse 25. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. When he saw it, he took it in. Lord, thank you. You know, he, he says, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I can depart in peace now. I'm done. Thank you. He received that comfort. We can also see how both Simeon and Anna gave thanks. He explodes into praise, praising God for the gift of Jesus. And Anna did the same thing. And then the prophetess Anna does something really, really beautiful. She cannot help but tell others. I mean, we find her. She continued to speak of him. That's ongoing. It wasn't just a one-time thing for Anna. She didn't just kind of go, oh, yeah, there's this, I should tell you about this. And then she moved on with life because she had more important things going on. No, she continued to speak of him. If we're amazed, we're going we're gonna to speak about the thing we're amazed about, aren't we? And if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, are you sharing that with others in your life? Are you eager to make him known? Day in, day out, with your neighbors, family, friends, co-workers, wherever you find yourself, fellow students, sports league, Whatever it is, those are all opportunities that we have every day to tell others. Jesus is the unique one, the most valuable one beyond all estimation. Let's live like it because it's true. And let's see what God does to bring others to know this one who has come as a light of revelation, as a glory for his saving work, as the rescuing of people who need a savior. And that's everybody. Let's pray. Lord, we we look to you and ask that you would uh, help us to receive your word today, that we would respond with amazement, that we'd receive your comfort, that we would give thanks to you, that we would tell others. And Lord, especially right now in this moment, if there are those who have never yet received 
that comfort that comes from you, will this, would this be that moment to trust you? They would simply admit that they can't keep your law. Ask for your forgiveness. Receive your finished work. Jesus is the one who rescues all who call upon his name. We thank you again for this time. In the name of our risen King Jesus, we praise you. Amen. Well, we now come to a time of celebrating the Lord's table. And it's a time for us to remember what Christ has done. If you'll open your bulletin, you'll find in the middle of your bulletin a sheet there that has uh, some, some prayers listed on it and other ways that we can approach this time together. Uh, maybe you find yourself in the place of, you, you haven't yet come to, to, to receive Jesus. There are some things there for you to consider in prayer. Uh, and then there's, there's other things as well. But um, what we're going to do is uh, we have a, a couple of deacons coming forward to, to um, monitor the elements as they're distributed. We're going to just stand and, and come forward as you would like to grab both elements, the, the bread and the cup. And go ahead and return to your seat, and we'll partake of them together. But, but as we do that, let's ask ourselves the question, do we really value Jesus? Have we really taken into account the things we talked about even this day? Are we giving thanks? Are we telling others? Are we receiving uh, comfort from him? And so as we come forward together as a church family to to receive the elements. Let's have those things in our minds together. So I invite you to come now. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, we thank you that we can take this time to remember what you've accomplished. Thank you for Jesus, our salvation. Thank you for opening our eyes to see what you've prepared in the presence of all people. Thank you that this is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. We stand amazed. And so in this moment, as we partake of these elements together, we give you thanks. We remember your finished work as the law keeper. We remember the purchase you've made with your own life to buy us out of the slave market of sin. And we thank you that this work truly is finished as you declared there on the cross as you gave your life. So we praise you and we give you thanks in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread after giving thanks and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body that I give for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and declared, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. Well, we're going to close with singing the last verse of that song again, which looks forward to the return of Christ as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing together.